0: Who drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord... We are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God.
0: Let's pray together. God, we come before you this morning and... We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive, that it is for our benefit, that it helps us to know you better and to become more like your son. I pray this morning as Tommy preaches that you would be with him, that your spirit would be guiding him, that you would give him boldness as he proclaims your word and that we would be able to hear your words um, more clearly and understand them better. Yeah, God, we just praise you that you are good. And um, yeah, you are good even in seasons of hardship and trials. And Lord, this morning, we come before you with a heavy heart because of the tragedies that happened last weekend, the shootings in California and Buffalo, Lord. And we want to take a moment just to mourn the loss of life last week. Um, And we just pray for the families of Roberta Drury, Margus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Aaron Salter, Geraldine Talley, Celestine Chaney, Hayward Patterson, Catherine Macy, Pearl Young, and Ruth Whitfield. God, we just, the loss of life is tragic to you, and it is tragic to us. And we also pray for John Cheng, who is killed in California, Lord. We pray for their families. Pray that you would comfort them, God. We pray that these tragedies would be seen in public, that they would be mourned, that there would be a cry for justice, God, that we as your church would be just um, a, a voice for justice and reconciliation, God, and that we would be fighting against um, racial injustice any way that we can, Lord, and we just lay these sorrows and tragedies at your feet, God. We mourn with these families, and we proclaim even in the midst of hurting that you are good, that you are at work, and we pray that you would make that clear to us and clear to the families, God, and, um, yeah, Lord, we are just so grateful that you work good, even out of suffering, and so we ask that you would do that, um, Yeah, and we just pray for your peace and your healing and your hope in the world in this dark time. God, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We worship you. You are the only one who is worthy of our praise, and so we praise you this morning, Lord. Thank you again for your word. Pray that it would speak to our hearts, that it would encourage us, Mm. and um, yeah, we just praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: All right, well, good morning, Mercy House. Nice warm day. You guys staying hydrated? Feeling good? Yes? Some of you? Conscious? Favo's got a water bottle. Great. Well, I'm Pastor Tommy. I'm glad that you are here joining us this morning. We're going to be continuing on in the book of 1 Corinthians, which we started back in February, um, and we're going to finish... The end of June. And if you're a planner, you want to know what's on the horizon, uh, we're going to have a short series in July and August, which is going to be on the Upper Room Discourse. So if you don't know, the Upper Room Discourse is Jesus' last teaching time with his disciples before he goes to the cross. Uh, And this is in the book of John um, in chapters 14 through 16. So that's what we're going to be doing in the months of July and August. And then we're going to be starting our fall series starting in September, which we're still hammering some of the details out. But that's a little bit of a view into what's happening. Uh, On Sunday mornings this summer and fall. Uh, This morning in particular, we're going to be looking at the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, And and, and as we're reading through 1 Corinthians, what we'll notice as we get to chapter 11 is that Paul begins talking about the church-wide gatherings of people and what they ought to look like. So in the first 10 chapters uh, of 1 Corinthians, Paul tackles a lot of different fractures in in the day-to-day community uh, of the church. So he talks about unhealthy factions and divisions that are sprouting up. Uh, He talks about interpersonal conflicts. He talks about sexual sin. He talks about what marriage and singleness ought to look like and how to navigate even just the, the Corinthian culture in light of the gospel now that they are Christians. But what Paul turns his attention to in chapter 11, which is going to actually run its course through chapter 14, is what a church gathering ought to look like. And the specific gatherings, which we know of as a worship service or a Sunday service, which is distinctly unique and different from just hanging out in, like, a backyard barbecue with some church folk or hanging out in your living room with some people in your small group or even coming to, like, a prayer and worship night right here in this space. It's uniquely and distinctly different what we're doing here on Sunday morning. And what we'll find is that as Paul talks about these intentional gatherings of God's people for the purpose of hearing God's Word being preached uh, responding in worship altogether, is that the principles that he lays out goes beyond just the 90 minutes or so that we spend here on a Sunday morning, really speak to what it means to be in Christian community as a whole. And so this morning, we're going to be working through verses 17 through 34. If you have your Bibles, please turn there now if you haven't already. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the chair below you, and I do want to encourage you, like, open it up look at these words. I want you to be able to get the full experience of seeing and reading and hearing God's Word this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to give you a simple breakdown of this text. Uh, Paul, in this section, he's addressing how the church is handling communion. And here at Mercy House, we take communion every single week. Other churches in our denomination might actually do it once a month. Others do it once a quarter. We take it each and every week here at Mercy House. This is actually how we land the plane of the sermon every single week, and we'll talk more a little bit later about why we do that, but this is a unique moment for us this morning as we kind of break down these words and we remember why we even do communion in the first place. As Paul talks about communion, I think one way to organize this passage is really just in two sections. He talks about what's wrong about communion, uh, specifically how the Corinthians are doing communion wrong, and he talks about what's right. And and what is the right way to approach communion? So before we dive in, I'm gonna pray for us. So pray with me now. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, your word is true, it, it is solid ground that we can stand on, it, it brings life and joy to us. So, God, help us now as we look at your word. Help us to see it for what it is. Help us to be fed this morning by your word. We pray that you would use this time to minister to our hearts and our minds. We pray that each of us here would come to have a renewed perspective and understanding of the bread and the cup that we're blessed with each week during communion. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better but for the worse. No, I will not. Paul's disappointed. He's disappointed. This is a disappointment sandwich that he's serving to the Corinthians. He starts off in verse 17 right at the beginning there, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And then he ends in verse 22 there. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so that's the disappointment sandwich, and the contents of that disappointment sandwich is more disappointment. So there's a lot of disappointment from Paul. And Paul's really upset here, and I think the question is that we should be asking is, why? And the Corinthians have such a wrong attitude and view of communion, and and they're acting in such a way that leads Paul to ask them if they despise the church of God. Why is Paul so upset? Well, look again at the second half of verse 17. I'm going to start right in the middle there. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Look, church can be fractured, church can be really messy, but it should never leave us worse off when we gather together. This is like the absolute bottom threshold for a healthy gathering of believers, especially here on a Sunday morning. If we're better off staying at home, then we have failed miserably as a church. But that's where the Corinthians are at. Keep on reading, verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So I want to pause here before we go on. There is a sliver of goodness in this disappointment sandwich. You have to look a little bit closely to find it. In verse 18, where Paul says, when you come together as a church, so don't, don't gloss over that. The the word there is ecclesia, which means assembly. That's the word for church there. And he's going to be using that word throughout uh, the next couple chapters to talk about the assembly of God's people. And so that's talking about this right here. And I want to point out that it is good that they are gathering together, that they are getting together. And the same sentiment is communicated in the book of Hebrews. And this is going to be on your screen. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 And let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So evidently, in the early church, some were neglecting to gather together as a church. And we're not talking about one-offs, like if it's your grandma's 100th birthday, or you're on your honeymoon, or like you've got COVID, that's not really what we're talking about here. But people were making it a habit not to assemble with the people of God, or kind of skipping church regularly, and doing so so regularly that the author of Hebrews has to remind them and exhort them to keep gathering together. Like, hey, keep gathering together as a church, keep worshiping together, keep praying together, keep preaching the word. So let's not totally discount the Corinthians. At at least they are regularly gathering together as a church, even though Paul is saying when they gather, it's for the worst. We'll get to that in a second. But this does help us understand our worship gatherings and what we're doing here on a Sunday morning, what we call a church service, and the fact that Sunday morning worship is critical to the spiritual and emotional health of followers of Jesus. It just is for mature believers who have a healthy view and a healthy understanding of what's happening here on a Sunday morning, church is not optional. It's not any more optional than putting gas in your car is optional for traveling or or putting food into your belly for living. I understand a part of this is, I'm preaching to the choir right now because you guys are all here right now but i do want to take a moment right now to make a case for those who are listening on our live stream or those who are listening to our podcast online if if your primary spiritual diet is remote if the words that you're hearing right now maybe you're on a treadmill maybe you're driving in a car if this is what you consider church time i want to encourage you and I, i want to like plead with you to participate in the local gathering of the body of believers if you can. There is something that is unique and significant that is happening in this space right here, right now. And, and, and I'm not saying that God can't use podcasts or that he can't use remote services or that he can't work through like digital preaching of God's word, but what I would argue is that it is not ideal and, and that it's not the design. So for those of you who are online, I want to invite you as humbly as possible to come in person to enjoy Ecclesia here as a church if you have the ability to do so. And for those of you here, I want to encourage you to make this a habit. Continue making this a habit in your lives. Make this a part of your routine. Like Let your weekly fellowship and connection with your church family and hearing God's Word being preached to you Let that be a central priority to your life. That is the biblical vision for what it looks like to gather together for the body as a body of Christ. So here in these beginning verses, we're seeing two very bare minimum, absolute lowest bars for what a healthy church should look like. We should be gathering regularly and consistently and that it should be better for us when we come to church, spiritually, emotionally, even physically, than it would be if we were to stay at home. These are like the lowest bars. Mercy House aims much higher than that, but that is where we want to start. Okay, so that's the sliver of goodness, and it's honestly all downhill from here. But what What is Paul upset about? Well, here's the meat of it in verse 20 uh, to 22. He says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's what's happening the the church was gathering together in Corinth, and, and it looked different than what it looks like for us today. In the early church, the gatherings were done over a meal that they would share all together. It would be kind of like a weekly banquet, lots of food. They would call these agape feasts or love feasts. And this is mentioned in the book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 12. And, and they did this for a couple of reasons. And one was because it was a culturally normal thing for them to do. So gathering together for meals was how people connected with one another, socially fellowshiped with one another, And it was a meaningful way to communicate agape with somebody. And sharing meals uh, in the first century actually was really intimate. It it was really significant culturally. You, You didn't just share a meal with anyone. And whoever you did share a meal with, it was a big deal. You didn't do it with just anyone. So what the early church did was they... They actually did something really beautiful. They, they said, let's take this really intimate, social, uh, personal thing. There's that, kind of a sacred experience culturally, and let's open that up for the church community. And it was at these love feasts then that they would hear preaching and teaching from God's Word. It's where worship would happen all together. And we saw from the first half of chapter 11 that this is the setting where women would pray and prophesy alongside the men. I'm going to be talking about prophecy in a couple chapters, so don't worry. I'm kind of just putting a pin on that. And this is a big deal considering the Jewish traditions, which would have had men and women worshiping in separate places apart from each other. They're all together, all eating, sharing me, all worshiping, all praying, and doing this all together. And it was in this setting, in this agape feast, uh, kind of this worship service in the early church, when they would all take communion together. It was really quite remarkable. It, it was co- a culture-shifting experience in theory, in theory. But uh, well, what's happening in Corinth is not so remarkable. Right away in verse 20, Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And so the implication is that they are gathering to eat the Lord's Supper, to have communion together, or, or, but, but they're not actually doing it. Why? Look at verse 21 right after that. For, which is kind of like because in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So the two main faults in their church gatherings that lead to not being able to correctly have communion are that people are going hungry and people are getting drunk. And one of these needs some historical and cultural unpacking and one does not. So let's start with the one that does not drunkenness is bad. Drunkenness is bad. This is not me giving you some social commentary right now. This is not a conservative value. This is not a church tradition or me being a dad talking to my children. Like, this is the biblical view in God's Word that drunkenness is bad. Now, that's not to be confused with alcohol is bad. We know that alcohol is not inherently bad for many biblical reasons, and we can start right here in this passage. Wine is regularly consumed at meals. It was a part of communion which Jesus himself instituted, and he did that with wine and not grape juice. And Paul's critique in this passage of this fractured church service is not that Corinth uh, has alcohol. It's, it's not that they had alcohol and they were using wine during the communion, but it's what they did with it that he has a problem with. They got drunk. They drank to the point of excess. They drank to the point of inebriation and intoxication. Like This is what Paul is calling out in the church. Well, why? Why is it bad to be drunk? I think we should talk about this for a minute because I think as mature believers, it's not sufficient for ourselves or for our witness to the world around us to let our reasoning for righteousness be because the Bible tells me so when God gives us more than just a rule to follow. So there, there will be a time when my little girl, Davy, she's three right now, she's going to understand why I tell her to brush her teeth. She doesn't understand now. She's like, I do it because my daddy tells me to. But when she's in high school, Lord willing, she's going to know that she brushes her teeth because not just because daddy tells me so but she'll be able to understand the wisdom behind it and she'll be able to understand the importance of dental hygiene lord willing in high school and so as mature believers we also ought to have reasons and understandings for some of the things that god calls us to do especially when he makes them very explicit and clear to us we need to start with the imperative though don't get drunk don't get drunk Paul already in this letter speaks to this in chapter 6, verse 11, as he cautions the Corinthians to guard their community from those who profess Christ, who say, hey, I'm a Christian, but who live in unrepentant sin. He says in verse 11... Uh, I'm just going to read this to you in chapter 5, verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So that alone should be enough for us to hear the imperative that drunkenness is bad I want to bolster this case a little bit just so no one thinks, okay, maybe that was a special prescription for the Corinthians because they're super messy as a church, so they need a little bit of extra guard in this. Well, this is what Paul writes to the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, Orgy, orgies and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So drunkenness always appears on Paul's vice lists as something that he warns the church against. And here is a letter to the Galatians and where he's categorizing them as works of the sinful flesh which are contrary to the works, the spirit of righteousness that dwells inside of us. For those of us who might need even more explicit of an imperative or command and who who might not be satisfied in just seeing drunkenness in a list, Paul speaks pointedly and directly on this to the Ephesians. So this is another church. So this is consistent teaching across all of his churches. This passage in particular is helpful for us to get to the heart of why drunkenness is bad. This is in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 18. This is also going to be on your screen. He says, and do not get drunk with wine. So there's the clear imperative. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul says, don't get drunk with wine. And no, this does not mean that you can get drunk with beer or hard seltzer or pina coladas because they're not wine. Like, that's not a game we want to play with God's Word. He says, don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. Okay, so that word debauchery, what does that mean? It's translated as wildness or being out of control. He says, but, or instead, instead of having a spirit of wildness and of no self-control, be filled with the Spirit of God. And then it lists out what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit as opposed to being filled with wine. The Spirit enables you to, in verse 19, the second half there, it allows you to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, which essentially means having a heart of worship through and through. Being filled with the Spirit also leads to having a heart of thanksgiving to God and everything. And no, this is not the same as drunken merriness or, or, or like the glad heart of a drunk who, who's jolly and who's, who's affectionate. That there is a genuineness in one and a lot of brokenness in the other. And someone might hear me or read this passage and disagree and they might say something along the lines of, Well, when you're a little buzzed, your inhibitions fade away, and you can be really honest. You could be your true self when you have a drink. In reality, your true self is who you are when you are sober. With your inhibitions, with your insecurities, with your fears, with your anxieties, all of that. That's who you are. And drinking doesn't bring about your true self any more than closing your eyes makes the world around you disappear. It doesn't work like that. There's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous, and this is a 12-step program for sobriety. The saying goes, wherever you go, there you are. Wherever you go, there you are. Drunkenness is not a medicine. It's an attempt at escape. And I would say attempt because that's the problem right there. The problem is that we cannot escape from ourselves. And so part of the alcoholic conception, what they believe is this lie that drunkenness, that place of perceived escape, is where the true self is. And that is in part why some, this is, for, this is why they chase that drunkenness. This is not the gospel. It's not the gospel. We're given not a spirit of wildness. We're we're not in a prison of our own failures, our own shortcomings, a prison of our own shame and guilt where the only freedom is the bottle or medication. God doesn't rescue us from eternal destruction and then leave us in bondage to our sin. So we have the gospel where Christ has died to fully set us free to break the chains of sin and of shame and to give us life. And that life is not one of debauchery and self-loathing escape from reality, but a life of freedom in the spirit to be able to face ourselves and our shame and our guilt and our anxiety and our fears and ultimately in order to worship God with clear, a clear and sober heart and mind with a spirit of thanksgiving for every breath of this freedom which God has graciously given to us. So if you struggle with alcoholism, this moment is for you. This moment is for you. We, like, hear and receive this good news. There is freedom. And I don't mean just sobriety or the ability to stay sober. I mean, like, complete, absolute freedom. Freedom and healing from addiction and your sin in Jesus Christ. I'm talking about complete transformation from like death to life. From a place of absolute powerlessness in your addiction to supernaturally being empowered by the Spirit of God. So if this is your struggle, if addiction to anything, and it could be alcohol, it could be pornography, it could be illicit drugs, it could be prescription medication, it could be video games, it could be shopping, like whatever that is, if addiction is the prison that you live in, there is hope. There is hope. And it is found only in faith in Jesus and having a relationship with God. If this is like speaking to your heart right now, if you're feeling a moment of just being exposed right now, I want to encourage you to come speak to me after the service. Like, I want to talk with you and just hear your story. As a church, we have resources that that can help you navigate this specific struggle, and it is a specific and unique struggle, and that includes having access to gospel-centered, faith-based 12-step programs here in the valley, not just for alcohol, but any type of addiction. Drunkenness is bad because it is a worldly remedy for a very real spiritual problem. Our culture struggles with this. I think we as a community here also struggle with this. And you might be thinking right now, well, I'm not an alcoholic. Like, I, I, I'm not addicted to this. I don't have to always have a drink, But hear me now, if we find ourselves in a place where we're having a drink brings a sense of relief, if getting tipsy becomes a regular habit in our lives, if being buzzed does become some sort of escape for us, then we are, at the very least, in dangerous territory for our hearts and our souls, and it is a slippery slope toward destruction, so Paul says earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Mercy House, I want to exhort us to check ourselves, to lovingly check our brothers and our sisters in our community, lest we fall into self-destructive behavior that leads to spiritual, emotional, and physical death. We don't want that for any of you here, and so we ought to be careful. Instead, what we should be doing is pointing one another, pointing ourselves toward Christ, who is the true solution to all of the problems that we so desperately try to escape with whatever vice our flesh prefers. This is hitting home for the Corinthians, and the, 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 the Corinthian cultural identity of debauchery and wildness, which we've talked about earlier in this sermon series, their spirit of drunkenness specifically right here is being brought into the church, literally. We're not talking about a few members of the church who are struggling with drunkenness and alcoholism. We're talking about people in church getting drunk at church on the communion wine. That's a problem. Paul rebukes them, and he communicates his his disappointment, not because they're not following a rule, but because of everything that we just talked about. What they're doing is they're taking wine that represents the blood of Christ, which has been poured out by Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, a symbol of the gospel, and they're getting drunk on it. And that drunkenness is preaching a false solution to real problems. It's leading to an ungodly spirit of debauchery that is sinful. It's causing other people to struggle. And altogether, it's just preaching a false gospel. It's sacrilegious, it's blasphemous, and it's greatly offensive to God and the gospel. This is only half of why Paul is disappointed. Look at verse 20 and 21 again. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's supper that you eat. For in eating, one goes ahead with his own meal. Each, sorry, each one goes ahead with his, his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So we just broke down drunkenness there. Let's look at the other disappointment, people going hungry. At first glance, this doesn't seem like it would be that big of a deal, like maybe just bring a snack. If, if you're hungry, maybe you should just have a snack. But if you understand what's going on, you'll see that it's arguably worse of the two, the worse of the two. So a little bit of context, so you can really understand what's happening here. Ancient culture was excessively class conscious. So there is an upper class that is wealthy, they have a lot of social power, and there is a lower class that is poor and has almost no social power. And as I mentioned before, this would determine in many things, but specifically here, it would determine who you ate with. So culturally, the upper class did not share meals with the lower class. This is why it's such a beautiful gospel gesture when the early church brought people together in a single space to share a meal all together. You see a snapshot of this in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And this is the early church. This is one of the first pictures that we get of the early church. And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. that pleased God. I don't think that this is exactly prescriptive of how every church should look. This is descriptive of a moment of the church, but I imagine God smiling as He is seeing His church displaying gospel care and gospel devotion and gospel generosity like you see here. We talked briefly last week about how angels are kind of watching in on creation expectantly, and I imagine that in the same way that they cheer when a sinner repents, they also are going to cheer when they see God's church being God's church like the way that God designed it to happen. But I'm not sure there's much cheering going on as angels looked into the church at Corinth. What's happening in Corinth is not what's happening in Acts 2. In Corinth, you've got a division of that upper class and that lower class in the church. And not only did they bring the culture of drunkenness into the church, they brought the culture of class division into the church building as well. They brought uh, this culture of, of divisiveness and oppression. And at these agape feasts, where it would have made gospel sense, that people who were poor brought what they could, and that people who were wealthy would bring more food to be able to share with those who are in need. You've got, in Corinth, an upper class who's seated in really nice places, and they're eating the equivalent of, like, filet mignons and ribeyes and lobster and king crab legs. And then you've got the lower class sitting on the floor in the back eating knockoff Aldi goldfish, okay? And they're getting hungry. And while this might have been socially and culturally acceptable in Corinth, that the upper class just got better and more food than that lower class, this is not the way of the gospel. And what's happening is not just a selfishness on a, like a small scale. This is the culture of the church that is broken, and it's harming those who are in this lower class, and not just physically. There's like an emotional harming that's happening. This is why Paul says in verse 22, what Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The church ought to be the place where we bear one another's burdens, where we are actively looking out for the needs of one another and actively serving one another. If we have indeed been transformed by the gospel and have been given new hearts of compassion and hearts of grace and hearts of mercy based on the grace and the mercy that God has shown to us, then church becomes not a place where we can come in here and leave here with tunnel vision, where it's acceptable to be blind to the needs and the struggles of others. I think one of the things the key things that keep a, keeps a gospel believing and a gospel preaching church from being really healthy and vibrant and fruitful is that it comes down to a simple question that each and every one of us must ask ourselves as we enter into the church building and i think if we can change our mentality from hey what can the church do for me today what can i get out of my time here today Two, a more gospel-oriented, what can I do for my church today? How can I contribute to the needs of others here? If everyone in this room thought that way, Mercy House would be radically different. Radically different. Now, some of you do think this way, which is why our church right now looks radically different than if nobody had this outward disposition as they entered into the house of worship. So I'm not saying none of you are doing it. Some of you are doing it. We want to encourage and exhort everyone to do it. This is a place where we can grow as a church. And it begins with asking ourselves, how can I serve this person on my left? How can I serve this person on my right? How can I serve the children downstairs? How can I serve all these students that are coming? How can I serve the married couples in our communities? How can I serve the young singles and young professionals? How can I serve the high schoolers that are here? How can I serve the deacons, the elders, the staff? Like, may we grow as a church, a mature church body, to think in this gospel-influenced way, a way that pleases the Lord and, I imagine, makes angels cheer in heaven as they see it what's wrong with how the Corinthians are approaching communion? So this is point one of the sermon, and yes, we just spent that whole time on one point. What's wrong is a disconnect with God and a disconnect with community. A disconnect with God and a disconnect with community. This is what we need to know about the communion table, is that this is a meal that is shared with the Lord, and it's shared with one another here in this room, with your brother's and your sisters. And if your relationship with God is filled with unaddressed sin, and if your relationships with your brothers and sisters are filled with unaddressed sin, then you're not ready to come receive communion. You're not ready. In order to take communion the right way, at at the very least begins with having a correct understanding of what communion actually means. Because if you knew what it meant, then you wouldn't come to this table flippantly, is what Paul is communicating to the Corinthians. This is what Paul dives into in these next three verses, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks until he comes There's a very dense, dense few verses here. Communion is an incredibly profound and absolutely stunning moment where Jesus declares himself to be the fulfillment of numerous prophecies and promises that God makes in the Old Testament. And at that se- uh, the Passover Seder meal, right before his crucifixion, Jesus reveals His purpose as the promised Messiah and the Savior of all mankind through this meal. He takes the bread, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body, which is for you. So he's undoubtedly thinking about how God the Father rained down bread in the form of manna in Exodus chapter 16 from heaven thousands of years ago in order to sustain his people Israel in the desert, knowing that that was done intentionally to foreshadow this moment right here as Jesus reveals how he is the true bread of heaven. The significant difference there is that he doesn't sustain us for a single meal, but for all of eternity. And having broken that bread, he's foreshadowing how his body is going to have to be broken, how he will have to die for his disciples. Then after supper, he takes the cup and he calls it his blood. And this is communicating that he is the ultimate sacrificial lamb, that where every animal that has been sacrificed as substitutionary atonement uh, for the sins of Israel for thousands of years has failed to be the permanent solution for sin, His righteous blood will not fail. His blood will be the penal substitutionary atonement that thousands of years of of, of animal sacrifices have pointed toward. His blood will finally and permanently cleanse the sins of His people. And the most astounding thing that happens at the communion, and for this one I need to set the ball up on the tee before it gets cracked out of the stadium. In Jeremiah 31, God is talking about the absolute bleakness of the human condition. And he finishes verse 30, right before here, with saying that everyone will die in their iniquity. And then he says this, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this So a quick brush up, a covenant is a binding agreement between two parties who are working together towards something. And God is saying, look, I made other covenants with Israel for them to be my people. But Israel broke those covenants. They didn't uphold their end of the covenant. They were disobedient. They ran after other gods. They were fractured in their heart of hearts. But there will come a day when I will make a new covenant. And in this new covenant, the binding of it will not rely on their ability to follow my commandments and the law. No, this is, in this new covenant, I will put that law inside of them. I will write it on their hearts. In other words, their, their real problem was not behavioral. It was the fact that their hearts were so broken and so corrupted. And so in this new covenant, God says, I will give them a new heart. And then this new covenant, God says, I will, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And in this new covenant, I will forgive them of all their iniquities, and their sin will be completely removed. And then you fast forward to this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, where Jesus says, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Like, this is it. This is that promise that God made. This is that new covenant that we celebrate each and every Sunday. This is what God promised to his broken and sinful people, a people who just couldn't get their act together as hard as as much as they tried, a people who were just rotten absolutely to their core, who wouldn't be able to help themselves, were just absolutely dead in their sin, who needed new hearts. God promised that he would rescue them. He promised that he would make a way for them to have new hearts and to be fully forgiven and fully washed clean and for them to be made his people once and for all, forever. And this is it. This is the new covenant. Jesus is the new covenant that we have been grafted into and brought into. And so when we eat the bread and drink the cup, we preach and we proclaim this good news. Verse 29, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim it to ourselves. We proclaim it to the world. This is what communion means, Mercy House. This is what we do each and every week. We remember the new covenant in Jesus' blood. This is also why we need to approach the table seriously. The approach begins not at the institution of communion at the end of the service. It it, it begins as you enter into this building through those doors, as you consider your relationship with God and your relationship with others around you. And Paul gives the Corinthians a severe warning about approaching the communion table when our hearts are off with God and off with others. Look at these final verses, verse 27 But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Communion is serious. Communion is serious. It requires a sober mind and a sober heart in more ways than one. The way that we approach this table is with holy reverence for the gospel message that it communicates and with serious self-examination. There are serious consequences here, which Paul warns about for those who approach this table, approach communion flippantly or callously. And this is not to say that you need to be sinless or perfect in order to receive communion. As a matter of fact, receiving communion is remembering your need for God's grace to cover your sinfulness and your imperfection. And so Paul's warning is not, hey, get it together before you receive communion, or else none of us would be able to take communion. But what it does mean is being honest and transparent with the Lord. In verse 28, he says to examine yourself. If there is sin in your life or sin between you and someone else in the church, at the very least, that needs to be acknowledged and confessed to the Lord to make the decision to then also repent of that sin. And then you take communion. Paul says, judge yourself, examine yourself, not to see if we're disqualified from communion, but to acknowledge what communion means and our need for what it represents, which is the new covenant and new hearts and the washing and cleansing of Jesus' blood. What Paul is trying to communicate to the Corinthians is that communion is not a rote tradition or something that you check off of a box. This is a spiritually profound experience that gives you the chance to remember Jesus' sacrifice in, in an incredible way, to remember the atonement, the perfect and final atonement. And this is another colossal reason to come to church in person, which is to participate and partake in communion with your brothers and your sisters. So Mercy House, today I want to encourage you to examine yourself before communion. Not to be quick and hasty to take communion, to take a moment to reflect and pray. On what, you might ask? Well, the the Lord is going to bring that to your mind as you take time to be still and quiet before Him. This is not a time we're trying to dredge up things in our hearts and minds that just aren't there. You don't need to have like this wild emotional experience every single week as you take communion. But if the Lord brings something to your heart, if there's something that comes to your mind, it might be something that you need to address with the Lord or confess. You need to acknowledge that. If it's sin, you need to repent of that and ask the Lord for forgiveness and receive God's grace. And then... Take communion, knowing that God has died for you and any sins that you can bring to the table. The primary means by which God helps us examine and reveal our hearts is through his word. It's through his word. That's why we preach the Word of God on Sundays and then respond with communion. And that's why whoever is preaching here is going to land the plane with communion. And as they land the plane, there's going to be trying to lead the congregation and examining your heart specifically and what the Word of God has been communicating to us today. So maybe today the Lord is pressing on your heart your reliance on alcohol or anything in your life that has control over you and your life whatever you try to use to try to escape yourself or escape the hardships of life, well, if that's the case, then you bring that to the Lord. Bring it before Him and then come and take communion. Maybe the Lord is pressing on your heart, your tunnel vision. eh, As you come to church and not having an outward-facing perspective to serve others and love others instead of just yourself, if that's the case, bring that before the Lord and then come on down and take communion. We have a chance now to practice this all together, to come together as a church family and to take communion together. If you are a follower of Jesus, you need to know that whatever God brings to your heart during this time of self-examination, the blood of Christ has fully covered and fully washed you clean of. He has died for us in our sin, and there's nothing that can surprise God, nothing that can help Uh, Nothing that can keep us from communing with God. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke it saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance for me, of me for as long as you drink of the cup and eat of this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. God, you are a God of everlasting covenants. You hold us fast as a community you have done the work required to keep our end of the covenant. God, thank you that you are a God who is faithful to fulfill all of your promises, that you are a God of your word. God, help us this morning as we examine our own hearts. Lord, we confess that our church is fractured, our own hearts are fractured, and That's okay to confess because that is the purpose of what you've done for us. Help us, Lord, have the humility to be honest and transparent before you and before others. And then, Lord, help us as we receive communion to do it in a way that honors what you've done on the cross, but that also allows us to experience the supernatural receiving of your grace and covering of our sins, God. Thank you that that has been done once and for all. Help us to experience that anew this morning as we eat the bread and take the cup. We love you, God. And we thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.